describe to listeners your current environment? <laughs> Coming to you live from Beta Sig at Mizzou Homecoming. I'm currently sitting in um, a room with a broken vending machine and a broken light and a broken window. Is this just like releasing all of your memories from college? It's bringing out something in me I didn't know I had. (laughs) When we scheduled this interview, I don't think Julie was planning to go to homecoming. Well, first of all, I would just like to say that how sad I am that I'm not currently at homecoming either. The last couple of years, we haven't been able to go to homecoming because of COVID. This year, it just kind of snuck up on us. I think Sean texted Tim yesterday and was like, hey, are you guys going to homecoming? And Tim was like, oh, when is it? And Sean was like, tomorrow. You can still make it. It's a short drive for you. It really is not a bad drive. Only two hours. Games at three. I don't think we're going to make it this year, but I think next year we should plan a big thing. Julie sums downing me. You know what? I have to give Julie props because she was still determined to have this interview today. We weren't going to move it. So props to Julie for being a team player and uh, taking one for the team and taking this interview from a frat house. You know, this is always some, uh, you know, where we always imagined these would be recorded anyway. So I just wanted to bring our dreams to life. That's so true. So um, today's guest is Jeanette. And she is a presentation coach. And when she reached out to us, I was very excited because I know in my role, and I imagine Julie, yours as well, we've had to give presentations for various things throughout our career. And I've never received like formal training or really any sort of training on how to give a presentation. Have you? You know, I'm sure she'll prove me wrong on this, but giving presentations and speaking in public was never anything I needed training on in middle school, like seventh grade, I was running for class president and I wore a full red and blue outfit accompanied with pigtails, sparkly eyeshadow. I rolled my speech up like a scroll that was tied in red, white, and blue ribbon. So like flashy presentations with substance has always been my thing, but no, I've never received formal training. You just unlocked a memory for me when my bachelorette party had to get postponed. Julie put together a deck for a presentation to present to me an alternative option. And when I say, when I say this presentation was like, it was like a legit presentation of, you know, here's Here's the alternative plan where we would like to go. If you're not excited about it, here are some ways that we are going to make it more exciting to you. Here's the itinerary for the weekend. I mean, this was, it was very well thought out and it was a great presentation. Thanks. (laughs) I think we had fun. You're being humble. I thought it was amazing. It definitely made the experience uh, a lot more exciting and entertaining because I think I think Julie and our friend Kaylin probably knew that presenting the idea of going to Michigan to me was maybe (laughs) was maybe not going to play very well. But you guys presented it in a way that made me actually very excited to go there. And it was the best bachelorette party. And, you know, really, that's the power of the presentation. It truly is. Well, Julie might be a pro in presenting. I feel like I could use some tips in order to spice up my presentations. So we'll see what Jeanette has to say and how she can help us to be all better presenters. Jeanette, welcome to Explain Yourself. We are so happy to have you here uh, this evening for you and this morning for Julie and I. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to speak to you today. Can you tell listeners where you currently are? I'm currently in Germany, where I've been living now for actually a decade. I was shocked when I realized that the other day. Since September, I've been here 10 years. So I'm in Germany, in Bonn. Um, I don't know if people are familiar with Bonn, but it was actually the capital of Germany before the wall came down and the capital moved to Berlin. So this is where I'm based now. I did not know that about the capital of Germany. That's... Mm -hmm. A fun fact. 
Very cool. You are our first international guest. So that's awesome. Very excited about that. Julie is currently in a frat house in Columbia, Missouri, and I am in Kansas City, Missouri. So uh, very far away from where you are. So it's so cool that we can connect over Zoom and be able to, to speak with you. One thing that we ask all of our guests for the very beginning, what did you want to be when you were growing up? It's such an interesting question. I was intrigued when I um, thought about it because for the life of me, I cannot remember ever once in my life thinking of what I want to grow up <laughs> to be. And it's so strange, but it never crossed my mind. I can't think of wanting to be a nurse or a firefighter or a policeman or work in corporate. Nothing comes back to me <laughs> from my memory, Annika. You were just busy having fun being a kid. I absolutely. And, you know, I have a twin brothers, younger twin brothers, and I think they probably keep me preoccupied <laughs> trying to just defend my suites and my room and my territory. Younger twin brothers, I am sure that they gave you plenty of time to get away with things while your mom was focused on what they were doing. <laughs> you know, they were they they were such a team. They are a team. I think that twins are so special because they have a connection that probably someone like me or people who are not part of a twin just don't have. Um, and they would always team up. So when they were together, they would always team up against me, which was sometimes some good training in life in a, in a way when you have to stand up for yourself and just fight a crowd in a way. <laughs> so maybe they prepped you all this time for presentations and engaging crowds and... <laughs> managing the messes yes <laughs> so you spent most of your childhood not really thinking about what you wanted to be growing up which I think is fantastic that's probably how it should be at what point did you have to start thinking about what you wanted to be and what you were going to do in university when did you start thinking about that that's an interesting question because I'm actually South African uh, so I grew up in South Africa and I was there until 30 years old when I moved to Singapore, but I um, spent quite a lot of my childhood during apartheid. So I grew up in apartheid and um, grew, grew up in high school, got through high school. And during that time was when all the changes were starting to happen for us in South Africa. So it was a, a challenging time to to be a teenager in because we saw a lot of changes. There was also a lot of fear because just from propaganda that we had on the news and beliefs that people had during those days and now everything was changing. So I can remember in uh, my final year in high school, I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. I think maybe it's been with me for a long time, but I could not decide what I wanted to study. Um, where did I want to go? And I decided to take a gap year. So one year, just take a year off and then decide what I wanted to do. And my father was very open to that, but of course said, you're not going to sit home and do nothing. So you need to decide what you want to do. And that year, that year after high school, I started to work. I worked in the mornings for him as uh, the team assistant. So he was in the financial industry. So I was the team assistant. And then in the afternoons, I was a waitress at a coffee shop. And then in early evenings, I was also working in a retail store as a, a shop assistant. And first thing is I fell in love with two things, work in general. You know, when you meet very, very interesting people, that's a little bit different from who you are. And then also, secondly, I enjoyed the independence that money gave me, <laughs> you know, so I could just pay my car, drive, uh, go to where I wanted to go. And that was just fantastic. So when university, when the year was over and I went to university to study, I was dissatisfied with the pace of university, you know, sitting around on the grass and having lunch and waiting two hours for your next class. I was just not used to that pace and it, it frustrated me. So after one year, I decided I'm going back, going back to work. And um, I, I took very interesting or different directions throughout my career. So my, my first role after I, I finished university was to, um, I was a, a, again, a team assistant, more an administrative assistant. 
that evolved into a payroll assistant. And then I had what I would call probably my big career break, where I was employed by a big uh, company in South Africa as a sales executive. And this was in the recruitment industry. And um, this was a big learning curve for me, also a big learning school, because at that time, the unemployment rate in South Africa was about 30, 35%. And so you had many more people applying for the roles than the roles that you had. And so it was challenging to have one person happy about getting a job and then five people who you needed to tell, I'm sorry, um, you were not successful. So at age 23, that was a hard school for me also to, to go through. So I was in that role for three years. And then I moved slowly but surely into training. And I moved to one of the big banks in South Africa. They were part of Barclays Bank as, as well. And um, yeah, and I, I just started to, to do training, customer training, sales training, etc. And that's when my love for facilitation and engaging and presenting started. So I almost like just took a few steps into that direction. So yes, that that is a not a I'm not going to say a difficult transition because I'm sure you did great at both, but those are very different things to do. You know, train and present, or uh, you know, manage recruitment and and things like that. What did you find was very similar between the two things? Um, very similar, very similar between the two things were the people really working closely with people. And I'm also naturally a bit of an introvert, which means that for in the recruitment side, one of the things that helped me was the close relationships I built with my candidates and my customers. And then from a facilitation point of view, if you are facilitating a three-day training, you really get to know people, you really get to connect with them. And Although I'm an introvert, that gives me so much energy to, first of all, learn and get to know so many different people, but then also to connect with them, go deeper, get to know them, um, and also make a difference to them, which the recruitment as well as training, in my opinion, brings. You mentioned you were 23. You said when you had to tell people they didn't have these, they weren't going to get the job or that they did get the job. It sounds like you had some pretty big roles very early on in your career. And I'm thinking in the U.S. at 23, we're just graduating college. I cannot imagine somebody giving us the responsibility or me personally at 23, the role, that type of role, I would have failed miserably at it. So do you think having all of that experience on very early in your career, having worked sooner taking that gap year from college, do you think that is what led you to being able to fulfill that type of role? I think if you get into that role, you make it work because the, um, the, the work industry or the working market in South Africa is competitive, but you, you have to work in the role that you have. Like it's for South Africans, they cannot understand or think about not having a job. You don't leave a job without having the next one. And I know in Europe that is different. Many people resign and then look for a new role. That's not at all what, um, what we are used to. So you, you, you make it work because that is what is in front of you. And in a way, you see the opportunity. And I saw the opportunity in this role. And you just had to, had to go for it in a way. And, and it was hard. I just remembered one, um, one candidate that I interviewed and this was, like I said, just as we were transitioning through apartheid and finding our way as South Africans. And one of the things that happened in South Africa at that point in the job market is uh, black empowerment, which meant that you need to employ, when you have a vacancy, you needed to employ people of color, which had an impact, of course, on the white people in South Africa. And I remember this candidate, he was a white male, probably about 40, having to interview with me, a 23-year-old. And I just had an incredible empathy for that situation because I cannot imagine the switch that he had to go through. And that's where we were in, in, our, land, in our country and in our world at that point. So I used to train when I was younger as well. 
And just like you said, sometimes when the, you know, in training and in recruitment, the age gap can be strange. Sometimes I, I would walk into a room full of physicians who are 30, 40, 50 years old, trying to teach them new technology. And I'm just like, yep, I graduated in May. Like, how is everybody? Mm -hmm. So it's incredibly difficult. What did you do to be able to like take command of that situation and make everybody feel comfortable and like you still had like a presence there? Yeah, and, and I fully understand that, Julie, because you also in a, in a training environment, you get people who sometimes feel they were in that role by the time you when you were not even born yet, right? Um, what I tried to do is, and what I still do, because sometimes you just walk into a room with very senior people still, is to just focus on my skill. So my skill is to facilitate and present and run that specific training. And their roles are different or their responsibilities and their focus is different. So I, I felt that my job was to make sure that I facilitate this session in such a way that they take something out of it. And then I stay in my lane almost, you know, I, I stay within my expertise. So that helped me. So when you when you took the, the change to switch from kind of the, the HR recruiting into the more of the presentation and training arena, did you, did you have any experience with, with training at that point? Or was it you were just ready for the next kind of career move? I didn't have any experience. So it moved. It was actually quite interesting because I was in the office that day you know, when I was still in my recruitment role and someone else's phone rang and I just grabbed it because she was not at her desk. And what it was then the company that I was going to move to saying that they've got this customer training role available. And at that point, it, uh, it, you know, it was ethical as long as I spoke to my manager, we had a conversation about it, but I could apply for that role if that happens. And then, which I did. So it was just by accident that I picked up someone else's phone, then got the job. And again, just went with very, I was also lucky because my managers were strong and supportive and trained me in, in my role and just learned to design and stand up and speak and present. I have to say my biggest learning curve in this was when I moved to Singapore. So just about four, three years after the, I started in training, I got a position in Singapore with a multinational there. And that was a big learning curve because as a South African, it was also my first time outside of South Africa um, in Asia where the cultures are different and languages are different. Um, and that was a big learning curve. So just small things like they didn't understand my accent, so I had to slow down for them. Um, and also, sometimes, you know, when you, your humor just don't, you know, what was funny and stories in South Africa that South Africans would understand, they won't have. So it happened many times that I would crack a joke and everyone would just look at me, like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> <laughs> so that was a learning curve for me. That was uh, four years that I was in Singapore. And, you know, I was facilitating to people in China, to um, Japanese, Australians, New Zealand. It was really, I, I don't think I would have learned this at uni, <laughs> at university at all. Probably not. Um, <laughs> the, the interesting thing about teaching to people all over the world is that you have to make connections right away still and in, in order to facilitate that conversation, but you can't make them the same way, like you said, that you would when you were back in your hometown. So what, like, what would you do in order to gain, you know, their trust and to make them understand? I keep, I feel like I'm, I'm asking the same question as earlier, but it, it's in a different context, you know, like, how do you even break that barrier with them if, if they're contextually different from different places in the world? The interesting thing that I noticed was in Asia is that if you are in a, in a, in a more senior role, you automatically or an easier get respect. So that helped me just from a, I almost want to say superficial way, because you know what your job title is doesn't, doesn't mean if you can add value. And I remember the the thing that I focused on was making sure that I'm very well prepared, 
that I understood the country. So when I would go and I would train Malaysia, I would know what the organizational structure is. Um, generally would speak beforehand to my contact in Malaysia, like what is top of mind at the moment for the teams? What are they struggling with? Just so that I could also prepare examples. The third thing that helped me is to bring additional other examples in because my perspective to them would be from other countries. I could bring examples from other countries to them. They have the depth and the detail of their country. I won't have that. But if I could bring something into the, for them from another country, then that could be helpful. And then I just focused to get to know the people and to connect with them, for, especially in that first session, that first hour and a half um, of day one to really get to know them. And I made a point of learning everyone's name so that when you stand at the coffee machine, uh, you know, on day three, there's no chance that I could not know people's names. So that's what I, what I focused on. Yeah, I, I trained overseas. I was in the Middle East for um, a while training for work as well. And, you know, the first couple of times that I held a class, it was difficult, <laughs> obviously. And you got to learn really quickly, you know, connecting with people can be very similar no matter where you are. Um, but you just got to bring that extra context to it sometimes. So it's always curious to see how other people handle those, those situations. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. And I, you know, Julia, I think the thing is also at one point, and I, I give people this advice and they don't always understand what I mean, but at one point, I also decided not to look at the faces too much. Like, don't read the facial expressions. Because while you're standing up and facilitating, you could, you could completely misunderstand what's going through their minds just because we are used to different behavior. So I think to, at one point, just be on the show and go for it and then see how it, how it turns out. I think you guys are talking about something that we fail to do in the U.S. Like if you're presenting to somebody in another country, you're saying that you you do the research and you figure out what's going to work for them. I don't think that we do that very much in the U.S. We're kind of just like, here's the to-do list we have to do to get through this meeting, check the boxes, give the presentation and be done with it. So we can maybe talk about that a little bit later, but it sounds like there's maybe something we could do to improve in our meeting. So we'll put a pin in that. But I want to talk a little bit about... So you were in Singapore for three years. Where did you go after that? So after that, I was then promoted in, uh, to Germany. So our global head office is here in Germany. So I moved to Germany. And you're still in the same role that you're currently in? Um, I was in that role I, at that when I moved to Germany, I was responsible for Europe. And then very quickly after that, we had changes in the organization and I became in the same environment in, in training responsible for global. But actually on the 1st of July this year, I was promoted into a, a outside away from training and facilitation into sales enablement role. So I'm brand new to my current role. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know what I, that I know what sales enablement means. So can you walk me through that? So a sales enablement, people who are in sales enablement are responsible for making sure the sales teams are successful. So that would be from making sure that their tools, the tools that they use, the information that they get about customers, the way that they interact with customers are there to support them. So you, you set up the sales structure, the way of selling, um, sales training falls under that as well, sales tools, et cetera. So it's, it's really the, the team that supports or enables sales to be successful. Which still includes things that they need to know, like how to give a presentation, how to interact with somebody. So it all kind of ties together. Exactly. And we focus also strongly on the sales managers because that's also coaching and making sure that their teams are successful. And this is where my coaching certification helps me a lot is coaching the coach and also helping them to then do strong, effective coachings with the teams. You gave us a great little, what am I trying to say? A great little intro there to you have a coaching business where you teach people how to give pre better presentations. 
So can you tell us a little bit about that business and what you do with that? Yeah. So I started, I, I did my coaching certification in 2015 and then I started to coach on the side. So what I would call my little side hustle, it evolved, it, it, it evolved from general professional coaching more into presentation skills coaching. And the reason why I did that is because I made one of the biggest career mistakes in 2016. We had a change in the organization. Uh, my direct line manager left the business due to illness in 2016 and everyone was shocked our team was shocked the organization was shocked and in this crisis moment we I decided to just focus on my projects get the job done and go for it and in this time we also in the interim reported into um, our CEO and Everyone in the team, in my team, as uh, focused on their projects, they focused on their quality, they did everything I did, but they also had meetings with him and shared with him the updates on their projects and their progress. So what happened in the 12 months until we had a replacement or a new, new direct line manager, they were positioned so well. Uh, because he was aware of their projects, he knew what they were doing. And I was this silent little person at the back of the queue, and no one really knew what was the impact of my projects. And I honestly think that this decision to be quiet and do my job cost me probably about two years in my in my progress in my career. I think the the I think if I handled it differently, my promotion that I had now in July would have come two years earlier. So that's why I feel really strongly about focusing on presentation skills, because it's one of the legs of communication. And I can't train communication or teach people about communication because I'm not a communication expert, but I have the experience in presenting and facilitating. So that is why I want to focus on that. And also with my coaches, I started to notice a lot of things speak about confidence to speak up, not wanting to say something that's wrong or make a mistake in front of senior people. And so we tend to be quiet and, you know, not, not be visible in meetings. And I would like to change that just because I know I've learned the hard way that if you're quiet, nobody notices. And also, why would they notice? Everyone's calendars are completely packed. Everyone has is up to their ears with their own project. So why would people really know what you're doing unless you tell them? So that's how I evolved into the presentation skills coach. I think you made a lot of really good points there that we tend to think like, oh, how could they not know, you know, where my projects are? But then you're right, calendars are so full. Like we don't know what we don't know and we can't seek everything out. So if you're not putting yourself out there and making it known, like you said, your impact, what do we, what could we expect, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and you talked a little bit about, you know, the confidence to speak up and not, not think about, you know, the failing in front of people who are senior to you, but I understand that can be difficult. So what, kind of skills or what kind of advice do you give to people in that position? When I'm in the situation where I am, especially around people where I'm, they, they are quite senior and I'm experiencing this now in my real new role because I moved from training into self-enablement. So this is a really new topic for me. I, I realize and I, I tell myself that it is my job, first of all, to speak up. So if something triggers me or if I think if I just say if I have an idea, even if it is a strange, weird thing, I still feel it's my responsibility to say it. So it, that helps me to motivate myself when I tell myself, you know, it's actually part of my role. Being quiet means I'm not contributing and I'm not doing my job. The, the second thing that I recommend to, to people and my coaches is to prepare a little bit beforehand. So you don't have to spend hours in preparation. It could be 10 minutes to look at who's on that meet, in that meeting or on that call and start with a question. You can even start very basic with a compliment by saying to someone, you know, I think this approach to your project will really work. I think this will really work. And just your voice is already out there. So 
start with a compliment, move up to a question, and then when you get more confident, then start to give an opinion. So it's almost like the three levels. And the third thing that helps me a lot, and I also recommend this, is to be in the meeting a little bit early. So many times uh, when people are in face-to-face, -face, the presenter or the, the, the meeting lead or chairperson is already there a few minutes before the meeting. So you break the ice with them. You can even maybe con contribute a bit, discuss, chat, and you can even do that on virtual. So just be available five minutes before the call you never know, maybe they leave later in two minutes before and you're one of the first people there. I think that's a great point because that's something that I see people do all the time where they'll wait until the exact time the meeting starts, join the call so that they can avoid the small chat. But I think that's where so much of the relationship building happens. And that's such an area that people are missing out on. I am a people person. So is Julie. So I imagine Julie's probably like me. Are you joining calls early to have those moments? A lot of my career was spent leading calls, being the project manager. So I was, yes, always on the call early. I, like you said, I'm a people's person, but I think small talk is my worst quality in the professional setting. I don't know what to say. I I sound weird. I sound uncomfortable. <laughs> and I think people notice. So if you have tips, let me know. I think, um, yeah, I think also that small talk has in the beginning been quite superficial, potentially, right? It was just a discussion about something that stands on someone's desk or, um, you know, just a, the football from the previous night, etc. I think with small talk, also with an introvert, as an introvert, it's not something I love doing always. And I also want to have very strong connections with people. So I don't like it when it's superficial. I think the only thing is just to be there and be comfortable with where that conversations go. It could also just be logging in and say, hi, Jeanette, hope you're doing great and be there. So that if someone says something, you could add a comment. Um, it doesn't always have to be you know, very, very formalized. But as you can hear from my answer, I'm also figuring that one out myself. <laughs> I personally like to try and remember things that the somebody has mentioned to me previously. So I'm in project management right now. So I'm in meetings with a lot of the same people. So somebody might mention, oh, I'm going to whatever concert this week. And then a few days later, I might be on a call with them again. And I'll be like, hey, how was that concert? So I try to like, find little personal moments that aren't too personal. Like, I mean, I don't want to like know what you had for dinner last night, but try to be like, Oh, Hey, how is your kid doing? Or how was uh, their football game or whatever? Trying to find those little moments to make some sort of connection with them, but also trying to focus on things that won't be like a long dragged out conversation too, because as people are coming on the call, you don't want it to be awkward for them to join the call in the middle of like a very personal conversation with somebody else. That's a great tip. So speaking of tips, let's get into some tips that you have for, um, for us and, and listeners on how to be better presenters. So do you see a lot of common mistakes with your clients and people that you're coaching? What are those mistakes and how can we improve them? I think the first thing that I notice and also realize in general is that knowing something and doing something is two very different things. And I think that with presentation skills, it's things that we've heard before, but doing it is, is where really the, the magic happens. So I always warn people that the tips that I give you might have heard before, but really the power and the magic comes when, when you do it. And one of the first things that I suggest, and everyone hates this, I've not met many people love this, is to record yourself and listen back. Because when you do that is when you pick things up. You will pick up things that you can do differently um, but you'd also probably realize that you're not as bad as you think you are. Because I think sometimes when you're in a presentation, we are so critical. Or when you speak, even in a, in a meeting, um, we're so critical of how we do things. And that gives us a, a skewed perspective of our skill. So my suggestion would be when you 
of course, with confidentiality, we can't just record ourselves live necessarily in a meeting. Unless you, if you are face to face, and I've done this a few times, um, if it's external, some of my colleagues or people who are with me, they record me. So just record me and then I cringe and I watch it and I just suffer through it. But at least I see things that I can do differently. Or on a, on a, a different, in a different way, you could, when you rehearse, record yourself. And then you will pick up things. And what to look for is, I would say, filler words, because I've noticed also now during the pandemic, when we all were working pretty much from home, is that you pick up the ums and the okays and the so's much more during virtual meetings. Face to face, it probably feels more natural when someone has a filler word. But on virtual, you can just hear that immediately. So I would say record. And if you rehearse a little bit two times, that also helps. And listen for those filler words. Something that helped me a bit in the when I was in Singapore and also now when I facilitate to different nationalities is speed of speech. So if you're going too fast, and that is one of the biggest feedback I received is I speak too fast. So people who are not um, used to my my accent or don't have English as a first language, maybe it's not always that clear. So uh, the best advice that I got on this one was if you think you're speaking at the right pace, you're probably too fast. So you almost want to feel like you're speaking a little bit too slow. I see that happen often to people who I perceive to not know the material very well. And I feel like they want to talk fast to get through it and just be like, okay, it's done. Now I can get to the part that I know a little bit better um, and have a better conversation. Do you find that's the case as well? I, you, you're making a great point there. I read research about six months ago that said that when someone speaks very fast, we, we as humans perceive them as nervous and not confident. People who speak at the right pace for us seem confident and in control. So that's a very great point that when we are too fast, the, even if you don't feel unconfident or uncomfortable, that's what the audience notices or assumes. So great point, Julia. On that topic of being nervous, giving presentations, I mean, this kind of goes into public speaking a little bit. What kind of tips do you give your clients about not being so nervous, public speaking, kind of how to get rid of those nerves and, and be a little bit more confident when they're presenting. One thing that really helps me, and especially if you are in the beginning of your public speaking or presentation skills journey, is to expect the nerves. It's many times unavoidable because your body knows you're going into a situation and it gets ready. So you have adrenaline being pushed through your body. So your heart is pumping, your muscles are ready for action. So you feel a little bit more jittery. It's almost natural that your body goes through that. So it helps me that when I have those nerves to know it's normal, you know, and it's going to be here. And how can I, how can I use this energy to have the best presentation or, or the best uh, meeting that I could possibly have? That's the first one. And the second thing is when you go into a presentation and a meeting, you have your plan, you know, you know what you want to say, when you want to say it. And when it doesn't go like that, it's easy to either get flustered or feel that it didn't go well. And that's not necessarily true. So I always say have your plan and your structure. But if it comes out different, then it comes out different. And no one knows what you wanted to say. You, they probably make absolute sense, so just let it go. So I would say those two things. As it, Also for me now, I almost know the dance. I know beforehand I will feel a little bit um, nervous or uncomfortable. During it, I might feel like I'm not making a lot of sense, but afterwards I probably nailed it. And that's just what comes with experience. I think that's an incredible point. I feel like Sometimes when you're looking for tips online on how to speak in front of a crowd or how to make my presentation go well, they're, all of the tips are almost aimed at distracting yourself for some reason um, and forgetting that you're nervous, like somehow that's going to help. But I think the way that you put it in your first point, it's like if you just expect it and feel it, 
and use it, then you're going to feel better about it instead of trying to ignore the feelings that your body is giving you and and trying to forget it and then doing the presentation. Like we forget that these nerves can also help us. Definitely. And I think also we we have we've heard these messages about negative feelings, right? You're not supposed to have negative emotions. We should always be calm and collected and comfortable and confident and never angry and irritated and frustrated. But all those emotions, when you push them away, they just they feel bigger and they actually don't go away. So it's it's about embracing the nervousness and just using it. It's there. You can't do anything about it. It's it's there. You mentioned something earlier that made me think of of this. So I'm sitting here and I'm like, okay, most of the time you don't get presentation options until you're maybe a little bit further into your career. And you had mentioned earlier that one of your biggest regrets was in 2016 when you didn't speak up, you stayed a little bit quiet. So it made me think that that might have been a good opportunity um, for you and then other people listening maybe speak up and, and offer to give a presentation. I mean, make sure it's about something that is like relevant and it's not just a random presentation, but I think that's a good point where you can speak up and, and offer to be the one that presents or, you know, be the one to put together the presentation. That's a good learning opportunity for you. It's a good opportunity to kind of show people that, I have these skills and I want to try to learn these skills. So I just wanted to kind of mention that and point that out. And, and that's something that I realized as well. It's, it's as if people believe that you only use presentation skills when you have a formal presentation. And it's not true. It's, it's the same skills that you use for a meeting during a meeting. Um, if you are strong in presentation skills and someone surprised you with a, with a question, hey, Jeanette, what's your take on this? immediately your strong presentation skills will kick in in that moment as well. So you can use it even in your one-on-ones, explaining a a difficult concept to your manager or a complex concept in your projects, would your presentation skills would help you. And I completely agree. It's, It's like saying, let me take that section or can I take those two slides? And that, that's how, how you go. I also, something that's helped me a lot in my career was my sponsors so career sponsors people in the organization that's willing to help me grow and in many cases I have gone to them and said look I want to get more visibility I want to get deeper into this project can I present or can I be part or can I take a piece of it people are willing to to support you yeah I think that's a sign of a really good manager is if you do you know ask to step in and help be a, one of the presenters. I mean, like you said, it could even just be one slide, especially if it's something that you've put time in and worked on it. I mean, don't volunteer to help present if you've had nothing to do with the project. That doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense. But if you've helped with the project and it's a great opportunity for you to learn. And I would imagine most of the time a manager is going to love that you've asked to do that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I'm also thinking like, for example, um, virtual conferences or even face-to-face conferences now that we're going into that. And even if you're early in your career, you have something to share. Maybe there's a perspective as a Gen Z in the corporate world right now or anything that, that could be an interesting topic to the people around. Just present on these external conferences. And um, that's also where you get lots of exposure. And these are all things you can add to your CV and your... Um, your LinkedIn profile. That's a good point to make that, you know, once you do these things, they're A, they're building blocks, but I think you said adding them to your LinkedIn profile, that's perfect because A, that gives you a little bit more confidence, that gives you a little bit more visibility. You can say that you you did it. Um, and I think the more that you add to that in your resume and um, all that stuff, the more confident you get. I think the other thing that really helped me with presentations was helping to train newer people because Mm -hmm. you get that feeling that they're listening, that, you know, you have at least 
some seniority to them. So it feels like you're giving them a presentation of stuff that they need to know and, and they're looking to you um, to understand, you know, and build your confidence in doing that for people who are eventually, you know, your superiors. For sure. And I, I, that's what I also love about the youngsters, I have to say, is that they are so open to learning, uh, always want to hear what other people have to offer. And I think as we grow older, it's so easy uh, to stop learning. Actually, one of my favorite quotes is, nothing fails like success. And it's so true for me because when you're successful and you've had some of some progress in your career, it's easy to be complacent and, and, and stop learning. So, yeah, I, I think the youngsters are fantastic audience to present to. Yeah, Julie and I talk about all the time how learning is so important to both of us. I think we're both very eager to learn new things. It's one of the reasons why we started this podcast. We just like to hear from other people about what's worked for them, what hasn't, what they're doing in their careers and in their lives. And so learning, I think, is something that you should never stop doing. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about what you should do as a, a presenter, how to actually give the presentation and how to be better at that. What about the, the presentation itself? Do you have any tips for us on how should our presentation look? I know we shouldn't have a whole block of text on a presentation. What kind of skills and tips do you have for that? Mm-hmm. I, I, that's exactly it. So on the presentation itself, then this is a selfish tip, like, so do yourself a favor and don't have too many words on the slide. And that, that's what you, you're referring to now. But the thing is that the moment you have 10 bullet points there, you have to go through them. Or you have to learn a skill that if you run out of time or something happens, that how to move through that. So my advice is to have no more than 25 words on a slide. And there is no scientific, nothing around it. Just what I've seen, I could personally manage and still make sense. And it's almost like a bit of a a line in the sand. Okay, now I need to look at maybe a second slide, for example. The thing is, if it's on the slide, you almost have to deal with it. But if it's not on the slide, you can not say it or you can change your story. And you have a lot more flexibility if you're not stuck on the bullet points on the slide. So that would be the first one. And something that makes me want to cry is the boring boring corporate stock images that just doesn't add to it um there's so many interesting images out there that we can that we can use for example uh you could say uh, a little boy grabbing a chocolate or a donut or stealing a donut from a kitchen table could be we grabbed or we saw an opportunity and we took it you know, and that is so engaging for people because more than 60% of us are visual learners. And so it's just much easier to see an image like that and you get the point versus words on the slide. So that would be my suggestion on, um, you know, on, on the slides is as little words as possible. And the thing is to remember that the presentation itself is there to support you. And I think sometimes we we go in and we make everything around the presentation and we don't spend time on actually rehearsing the story or making sure it makes sense or I've said everything I wanted to say. Uh, yeah. So I would say if you can do it in three or four slides, do it as little as possible, as few words as possible and use interesting images. I love the idea of being more specific with the images that like you said, the image of a little boy reaching up for a piece of chocolate, seeing an opportunity, that's so much better than like, um, you know, this typical stock photo of like, here's everybody with their hands in the center, like about to like do the, you know, (laughs) high five or whatever. Um, Like no one cares about that, but the the image of a boy is like, that is an opportunity. So um, I love that tip. What about from a an audience perspective. So we are now going to be the best presenters ever, thanks to all of your tips. But what about as an audience member? How do you have tips on how to be a better audience member and more active listener? 
one of the things that I appreciate the most about my audience is when they start to ask me questions. I, I truly don't mind someone interrupting me and asking a question about something on the slide because the moment someone asks me a question, it's a two-way conversation. It's not me against them or to them. Um, and so for me, I... I, I tend to engage with, with a facilitator or the presenter. Of course, if it's a three or four or five minute presentation, then you can't really do that. But if it is a longer one and it's possible and there's the person is open for questions, then I would be a person who would ask a question. So um, that would be a tip on how to be a better audience member. And I think also think about what can you learn from that presentation? Maybe you have a lot going on around you. It could be your project is late or you're distracted or something happens at home and you feel distracted. But think about what is the one or two things that you can learn from this presentation? How can this actually help you? That it Maybe it's just an update, but what is something that you can learn from it? And I find that when I have that mindset, when someone else is presenting, I'm also more engaged and focused. So I have to ask, as sometimes a member of the audience, Feel like meetings are getting longer so I do have one more tip I want to uh, pick your brain about and it's what is like the ideal length of a presentation for you I think it really depends on the purpose if, if it is a update on a project then I would so, so say for example you're in a project and there's many people there and you need to give uh, an update I would I would say five to seven minutes is that is good for an update Generally, what we do in our organization when people present best practices, et cetera, we actually give them nine minutes. So nine minutes to do the presentation and one minute for the next person to start. Now, you have to manage that very closely, but that is generally the rule. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if people have more attention span to go longer than that if it's a peer presentation. Of course, if it's a training with very specific structure and tips, then you could go longer. I was recently listening to a podcast about meetings. Um, I'm trying to do some research on how to structure our project kickoff meetings and my role. Um, so I was doing some research on, on hosting meetings. And I think it was a Freakonomics um, podcast episode that I was listening to. And they were talking about the perfect length for a meeting. And basically they were like, a meeting should be as long as it needs to be no, no more, no less. And the example that somebody was, was telling was they were in this meeting, it was scheduled for an hour long and they got done 30 minutes early. And the, one of the people in the meeting, he was like, we should just, you know, get back 30 minutes of our day and, and move on. And somebody was like, well, I just hired this client. That's a clown. And so they literally called up this person who was a clown to come in and do like clown tricks for them for the rest of the 30 minutes. And they were basically like, that was such a waste of everybody's time. It had nothing to do with this meeting. This meeting could have only been 30 minutes, but because they had scheduled it for an hour, they just filled it with an hour's worth of content, mm. even though it wasn't relevant. So I think that's a great point, Julie, that you, you really kind of have this attention span. How long does a meeting or a presentation need to be? It doesn't need to be 30 minutes just mm -hmm. because you have 30 minutes scheduled. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And now you, you're picking on something that frustrates me a bit in our corporate roles. And that is that, I don't know if it's the same for you, but for us, every meeting is automatically an hour scheduled. I'm like, is there any intelligence or thought behind this meeting? How can everything take 60 minutes? So, I, yeah, it's a great point to just schedule 45 minutes or 30 minutes if that is what, it, what is necessary. And it, it, we actually are running a training now, um, a short burst training of 20 minutes, just these little ones. Um, so we're scheduling 30 minutes for them, but with a direction, it will be 20 minutes. And then they have have an expectation in their mind as well. We have a lot of 15 minute meetings in my organization where very quick project kickoffs. And a lot of times the projects were kicking off. I, I work on a marketing team. And so there are things like an ad or a, a blog post. And so a lot of times you can accomplish what you need to in those kickoff calls. There's usually a writer in there, a graphic designer. Here's all of the information they get provided ahead of time. 
here's what the writer needs to know. Here's what the, the graphic designer needs to know. And we can finish them in, in 15 minutes, which is so nice. However, 15 minute meetings in a full day, you can cram a lot more meetings into a day if they're only 15 minute long, 15 minutes long. So there's kind of a catch 22. Our meetings might be faster and more efficient, but then we try to cram so many more meetings into a day. And then you kind of get just meeting overload. Exactly. Because you also need time to do to action, take some time to do what, what was on your list to do. And you need the break. I think you need the break as well. We're talking about presentations. I'm glad that we're getting to do at least some of them in person again. But how do you think that all of these Zoom meetings have changed the way that we present? You know, we um, in my in my corporate role at that time, we in last year, April, we were launching a brand new sales training in our organization. And it was designed 100% for face-to-face. So in, in May, when we saw that the pandemic will probably take longer, we, we were not going back to the office in May as we expected. We converted this into a virtual into a virtual training. And it was a learning curve for all of us. Because when you do a facilitation or a, a training, you can you have the skill already to notice where people are and where they are in their journey and in the in the training session. But on virtual, you didn't have it. So I think personally that all of us have new new skills now that we had to also work virtually. Whether you're running a meeting or um, running a presentation or actually doing the training, our virtual virtual skills has increased. And I think that's excellent because personally, I think that face-to-face meetings are always great, but there's a definite place for virtual meetings and virtual presentations. And it's almost the same question as what is the right length of a presentation? You can also say that some presentations are great face-to-face and some of them are actually fantastic virtual. This this, um, with a goal, what the goal is of the presentation could work both ways. Um, I think also probably we as audience members are more comfortable now being in a virtual environment more so we can also we're not so distracted by being virtual we can actually consume more information now i think we can consume more information virtually i think that there may be at least what i see in the u.s and maybe maybe more people are more focused overseas but a lot of distractions of trying to multitask when we're in a virtual meeting so and i'm guilty of this too where i have dual monitors. Well, I actually have three monitors. And so I'm, I'm trying to focus on the meeting, but then I've also got two other screens where I'm trying to check emails and do other things. So how do you kind of combat that as a presenter and even as an audience member to just shut down and focus on what you're actually there to listen to? And that's so true because the, when you're face to face, the distractions are a little bit further away from you. But when you're virtually, you are receiving the training or the presentation on the device that distracts you. Um, for me, it is contracting in the beginning and just saying, you know, I know that your email is popping up and I know that you might be thinking of other things at this point, that's that's natural, but you invested the time now to be in this meeting. It, it has a purpose. And then I usually state the purpose as well. And then right at the beginning state, what would they get out of it? What would they walk away with so that there's more why in there? Um, but yeah, it is, it's much easier to be distracted in a virtual environment. I kind of like the little drop a little teaser of what you're going to get out of this. So it's more enticing for them to actually stay engaged. That's a really good tip. If you could leave our listeners with one big reason why you're doing this and why you think it's important, why you think presentation skills are important, what would that be? The big reason why I'm doing this outside of my corporate role and why I spend extra time to be a presentation coach is because I would love for people to speak up. I think it is, it's really hard when you have something to say and you don't feel confident to say it and you've got a question and you don't feel confident to, to ask it. The thing is, as you, as we progress in our careers, there are other people coming up behind us. And we become the examples for them, firstly. So if we are quiet, if you're a quiet female, if you're a person of color and you're quiet, you're not the example that other people really need to see. 
So that's that's a big driver for me. And I want to encourage people to be visible and be the example. Because also when you speak, you make an impact because maybe your one question changes the project or your presentation gives someone an idea that, that changes their environment or um, the way that they see things. So that's why a big why why I do the presentation coaching. I think that's absolutely amazing and such a great point that we forget that we're so focused on our own careers that we forget that we are examples to other people around us. Absolutely. And I think also as you progress in your career, you speak more, you present more. Um, it is then, then communication and positioning of your team and your projects becomes more and more important you move away from being the implementer and the doer to the one who leads the team so you might as well just get it under your belt when you're young and early in your career because it's not going to go away at all well we appreciate you walking us through what it is you do and all of these tips and tricks I think there's definitely something in here for everybody and I hope that they can take it to heart and start applying it to their work immediately so we really appreciate you coming on but we do like to end every episode with some more fun questions to just get to know you better. Mm -hmm. um, and one of my personal favorites is if you could gift everybody one product or book, what would it be? Actually, I've got it right here. Um, this is uh, what I'm holding in my hands is a deck of cards called Queen G Cards. And I saw the ad on on social media and I was immediately hooked it is from a girl an Israeli girl young girl she and her father were um, on a family holiday and they were playing cards and during the game she asked him why is the king more valuable than the queen so when you play why does the king earn more, more points than the queen she also asked why do we only have jacks and all the jokers are male so she designed a pack of cards that have no more kings and queens, but there are monarchs and they are equal in points. Uh, duchess and dukes, so no, uh, that's also part of the monarch. And she created princesses and princes. And also the jokers are now male and female. And she had her first version and it sold very well, but some of the feedback that she received was a surprise for her. And that was that everyone in the deck of cards were still white. So her 2.0 version is actually with people of color as well. So it is so interesting, Queen G cards. And I would actually give this to everyone that I would see. I actually have three extra decks here that I want to send to a few people because I think that that's such an interesting concept in my in my life as a white South African, I never questioned the deck of cards, never thought about the color, about the gender, anything around this. And she just brought it to light. And I just love it. That's such a fun story. And I love that she had the mentality to ask those questions and then actually do something about it. Cause I think a lot of times as kids, we just, we ask questions and then we're like, we just accept the answer that we're given. So Younger people are so much more intuitive than that I was when I was that age. It's amazing. And that's why I'm looking forward to what these youngsters will bring to the market. Another fun question for you. I like to listen to like a really good pump up song before I give a presentation. So what's your go to kind of anthem pump up pump up anthem? I have to say there are three artists that I absolutely love that can make me move. And that is, the first one is Pink. Just love everything. I just love her attitude as well, um, her music. And then, of course, Gaga. I just love it. And Sia as well. So those three, anything old, new, I don't care. Those are the things that gives me energy. And, um, and this is actually excellent to do before presentation as well, just to get you moving, get your spirits up, get your energy up as well. I love that. Those are all super great artists, all with very empowerful messages too. So we don't let any guests leave our podcast without answering this. And you can answer it any way that you want. 
what is your unpopular opinion? Oh, wow. Um, I think this is an unpopular opinion in certain, in certain circles. And I think it is in more than we expect. Um, my unpopular opinion is that women are not supposed to or necessarily be the ones who works in the kitchen. And I get, uh, you know, you might think that this is a, a, an opinion that many people have, but sometimes I just meet people who have a completely different opinion about this. They still have very strong male-female roles um, and perspectives around that. And I just feel that that's not necessary. <laughs> These people sound like they might need a deck of Queen G cards. I think so. <laughs> That's a fantastic question. I love that. <laughs> it's a fun one. We've gotten some really interesting answers from everything to a lot of like food related things or TV and movie show related uh, answers. So it's always fun to hear uh, what people's deep unpopular opinions mm -hmm. are. Well, Jeanette, thank you so much for coming on. I had texted Julie during uh, our interview and I was like, I love her. This information is so fantastic. I think that people are going to listen to this and immediately have things that they can take away and go implement into their presentations uh, as presenters and audience members. So thank you so much for, for coming on the show. It's a huge pleasure. I had so much fun. And um, this is the perfect way for me to also end my, end my week. And um, yeah, it was great also to speak to you. So if our listeners would like to connect with you, I know you have an Instagram page that's full of resources. Where can they find you? They can find me on Instagram and I'm very active also on my DMs. So if they've got very specific questions, I'm happy to have a conversation on that. And then, of course, on my website, um, you can find a lot of resources there as well. And I just launched a four-day challenge as well, a presentation skills challenge. So if that is interesting for people, they can definitely sign up for that as well. Can you give us the name of your website and Instagram handle? Yes. So it's JeanetteBuerta.com. So my name, surname.com. And my Instagram, uh, Instagram handle is JeanetteBuerta underscore Europe. And we will link those in the show notes for everybody as well. Thank you again. Thank you very much. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Explain Yourself. You can find show notes for this episode on our website at explainyourselfpodcast.com. If you have questions for us or want to suggest a guest, reach out to us on our email at explainyourselfpod at gmail.com. Make sure you're following us on Instagram at explainyourselfpodcast and on Twitter at explain underscore pod for more content from us and our guests. We'll be back next week where we interview Brooke Burton. Brooke is the owner of People's Club Chicago, which is a new way to socialize and enjoy engaging food, drink, and cultural events. And per usual, if you liked this episode, please go like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Your ratings and reviews help us to grow the show, get new listeners, and that way, it's not just our moms listening.